Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The Read to Lead Podcast, Episode 71. Hi, I'm Jared Easley, author of Podcasting Good to Great, How to Grow Your Audience Through Collaboration. And you're about to enjoy one of my favorite podcasts. It's the Read to Lead Podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. It's going to happen in our lifetime where you won't just master one craft and do that for the rest of your life. You're going to have to take a bunch of different skills and combine them in a unique way that is your portfolio. And that, I argue, is actually your calling. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever-important reading list, but also bring you key in insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now here's Jeff. Hello and welcome to the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where we sit down with a successful and inspiring author each and every week. And we talk about their latest book and their insights on things like leadership, personal development, career marketing, and entrepreneurship. And in today's episode, we'll be chatting with Jeff Goins, best-selling author of The Art of Work, a proven path to discovering what you were meant to do. And I'll ask Jeff about the concept of succeeding, not despite our failures, but because of them, the importance of mindset and what Jeff learned from his dad about doing your best, the portfolio life and why the future belongs to those willing to embrace it, and a lot more. Jeff mentioned to me the other day he wanted to do something especially for listeners to this show. So stick around for the end of today's conversation. We'll have more details about that. It involves putting you in the interviewer seat and letting you ask Jeff the questions. Again, more information about that at the conclusion of today's conversation. Jeff will also have information on how you can get his book plus several hundred dollars in extras for just the cost of shipping the book alone, about seven bucks. Be sure and stick around to the end of the show for more details. I want to remind you of the folks making this podcast possible. First is Blinkist, where they serve up inside their free app, fantastic business book summaries in both written and in audio form. To try the app free for three days and determine if it's right for you, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. And also our friends at lynda.com who want to offer you a 10-day free trial, access to every one of the thousands of tutorials on their site just for listening to this show. To find out more, read to leadpodcast.com slash lynda, L-Y-N-D-A. Jeff Goins is a full-time writer and lives just outside Nashville, Tennessee. His website, GoinsWriter.com, has been visited by more than 4 million people from all over the world. He has authored three previous books, The In-Between, Wrecked, and You Are a Writer. And his latest book is called The Art of Work, A Proven Path to Discovering What You Were Meant to Do. 
you missed our first conversation with Jeff centered around his last book, The In-Between, you can check out readtoleadpodcast.com slash 004 for episode four. Well, in the new book, Art of Work, uh, after encountering uh, hundreds of stories from, from people who found their calling, Jeff has identified seven common characteristics, and he dedicates a chapter to each one of these, awareness, apprenticeship, practice, discovery, profession, mastery, and legacy. And I want to start off, Jeff, by commending you for not falling to the temptation of trying to cram these into some cheesy acronym. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks. You know, I, I'm, I'm so uh, uh, skeptical of things that sound easy or, mm. you know, like I, I get the, the need to make things digestible and memorable, but this is not an easy process and I think we do uh, the concept of a calling a disservice when we say oh it's you know it's easy it's seven easy steps so even the fact of you know like separating them into these seven core principles was something that I really uh, evaded but then just realized no like I mean this is really the way I think it, it works but uh, yeah thanks I, I don't really like acronyms <laughs> Well, I want to start by making sure we're all on the same page when it when it comes to calling. And you describe it in the introduction of the book as, as not some carefully crafted plan, but what's left when the plan goes horribly wrong. So elaborate on that for us, if you would. Sure. Well, you know, I think that um, there are books about how to succeed at anything. There are books about how to uh, become master of your own destiny. And I think those the, those things are fine. This just isn't one of those books. This is a book for the rest of us who feel like we don't really just know what we want to do with our lives. And if we have some notion of what that might look like, it feels kind of messy. Like we feel like we're having to kind of pick up the pieces of our lives and make some sense of it. And I think most of us feel like at times life is something that happens to us regardless of how many you know, positive thinking books we read and how many seminars we go to. At times there seem to be things that happen that are outside of our control. And I think any of us who are honest about our lives would admit that. And so The Art of Work, the basic premise, and I talk about this in the introduction of the book, which sort of you know sets the stage for it, uh, is that um, maybe uh, the life that you lead and finding your life's purpose isn't so much about saying, here's what I want to go do with my life, but rather, here's what I'm learning about myself from my life. And, you know, all, things happen to us, good things, bad things happen to us. But maybe a remarkable life isn't so much about controlling the things that happen to us, but rather controlling our reactions to them. And early in the book, I think it's in chapter one, there's this discussion about good fear versus bad fear. And you say the trick is to know when to listen to your fear and when to not. And and so how can we be sure when it comes to that, Jeff, that we're making the right decision? So, you know, I think that there's a lot of talk about fear um, in the world today, Jeff, and you, yeah. you and I listen to a lot of podcasts talking about, um, you know, motivation and how do you go do the thing that you're supposed to do, uh, whatever that might be. Um, you know, how do you chase a dream? How do you succeed? And uh, I think that we have downplayed the positive importance of fear in our lives. And in, in the book, I talk about uh, a woman, Jody Noland, who really used fear to find her life's work. And she found it, you know, later on in her, her life. She found it in her late 50s. She found this thing that she was supposed to do, which was start an organization helping people uh, write letters of legacy to their loved ones. And she 
uh, came upon this work by going through a season of pain, of seeing friends and loved ones and ultimately her husband die, many of which you know, died of cancer, and seeing the dramatic difference between somebody who wrote a love letter to their you know, kids or their spouse and said, you know, just letting them know how they felt about them. And she saw the difference that made on people. Uh, and then she saw the void it left when somebody um, moved on, you know, passed. And, uh, you know, a, a son or a daughter or a friend or a spouse had some sort of, you know, void in their life. And, and they, didn't, they were unsure of how that person, you know, felt about them. And so Jody's fear was uh, that um, she told me this. She said when she finally realized that she was the person that was going to have to do this because she saw one of her friends, uh, you know, write a letter to his daughters on his deathbed and it changed their lives. And then she saw the opposite happen with her husband. And when she realized that she was the person that was going to have to do this, she kept talking to friends saying, hey, like, shouldn't somebody do this? This is a great idea, you know, to like <laughs> teach people how to write letters to, you know, their loved ones before they go. Um, uh, she, you know, and, and she, people say, yeah, that's a great idea. But uh, she realized pretty quickly I'm the one, like mm. th- I'm the one that has to do it. She told me I was no longer afraid of failing at the point that I knew that I was supposed to do. I was afraid of not trying. So good fear is about, uh, good fear leads to action. Bad fear leads to inaction. Bad fear leads to shame and inadequacy and, and you just, I, I can't, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. That's bad fear. If I'm afraid of, you know, uh, messing up or uh, failing, and, and that just leads to me not trying. That's a bad kind of fear. A good kind of fear is the fear of missed opportunities, fearing living a life that ultimately doesn't matter. That kind of fear, as it did for Jody Nolan, can propel you into, I think, a, a more uh, powerful, impactful future that l- leaves a life of legacy. Well, if you know much about Jeff and his accomplishments these last few years, it, it, it might be kind of difficult to believe that he once had no idea what he was meant to do and what his dream was. So, Jeff, what is your response to somebody who finds themselves in that same place today? So I, I think that there is this myth uh, that we all know what we're supposed to do with our lives, that we just know. And if you don't just know, you're kind of out of luck. You're not special. Uh, you're not elite. And, you know, you know, good luck. You're, you're just kind of doomed to live a nominal, boring existence. But I think the truth is that most of us don't know. Maybe some people, maybe some very special people. I want to leave this allowance <laughs> that some people are born and they just know what they're supposed to do. Uh, but I think it's a very cruel taunt for me to, you know, tell you and, and tell all of these listeners that you just know what you're supposed to do. You just got to dig deep down into your soul because a lot of us feel lost. I sometimes still go, gosh, what am I supposed to do? So, you, so if you have to just know, if that's a prerequisite to finding your life's work, uh, that that's hard. That's a hard pill to swallow, I think. But as I found through talking to hundreds of people, uh, re-examining my own story, not just the you know sanitized story that I like to tell people, where it's all you know like glitter and fairies and rainbows, but like the, the difficulty of I did this and I wasn't quite sure, and I thought I might fail, and then I did this and I also wasn't sure. When I got really honest about my story, I realized. I didn't ever just know. To quote Mother Teresa, I didn't have clarity. What I did have was trust. And so I think that this path to finding your life's work is a path that has to be marked by trust. You have to take intentional action, move forward in a direction. Mm-hmm. You're not just wandering around, you know, like a lot of people just, you know, lost trying to figure life out. You're moving in a direction. 
but you don't know. You don't have clarity. I, I, I say in the book that uh, you know, clarity comes with action. Y- discovery comes as you begin to act on what you uh, do know. So if you don't feel like you know what you're supposed to do with your life, I think you're in the majority, not the minority. And uh, you know, amongst the people in the book, uh, you know, full of stories of incredible lives of impact, people like Mother Teresa, Walt Disney, also you know, a cast of characters of new people that I'm introducing you to, everyday people living these extraordinary lives. If you don't know, uh, much as they didn't know, you're in good company. <laughs> well, the second characteristic is uh, what you label as apprenticeship. And the question that is often asked, and I've been guilty of this too, is how do I find a, a mentor? And you, and you say that's not the question we should be asking. Yeah, I think it's really hard to find a mentor. I mean, I mean, have you ever tried to get somebody to mentor you and they turned you down or, you know, avoided your phone calls? <laughs> I have. It's awkward. It's yeah. hard, you know, to get somebody to say yes to potentially a lifetime of investing in your life. That feels uh, a bit much, especially in a pretty, you know, segmented, fractured culture, highly individualistic. You know, I'm talking about, uh, you know, being in the U.S. or even, you know, in, in much of the Western world, very individualistic culture. Contrast that with, you know, uh, other societies. I mean, this isn't, you know, uh, like this in all parts of the world, uh, but in kind of post-industrial societies, it's it's certainly this way. Um, you know, people kind of live these solitary lives where you go to work, drive home, pull into a garage, don't see your neighbor, you know, like it's, it's pretty individualistic. It's hard to engage with somebody at that intimate of a level where you're asking them to mentor you. So I don't think you should go ask somebody to be a mentor. I think the, that's the worst way to find a mentor. It, it can work. It's a way. But I think it's one of the worst ways to find a mentor. The best way to find a mentor is to recognize the one that's already there. And, and so I, I argue that we have mentors all around us, all the time. We just need eyes to see them. Jeff, you make such a great point uh, about the, you know mentor being somebody who could be right into your nose. Optimally, that person is someone who is you know sharing uh, you know a physical space <laughs> with you, someone who is present physically, helping mentor you. But but sometimes that can be a podcast or that can be a book uh, you've read. And I, I consider Dan Miller uh, a mentor to me, even though I've never met with Dan for the purpose of being mentored by him. Uh, his podcast and, and his books have, have mentored me over the years. And I think, too, about folks like uh, our sponsor uh, at lynda.com. They've impacted millions of people around the world with, with their you know, thousands of courses and their hundreds of thousands of, of video and things like web development and photography, visual design, uh, business, and even software training like Excel and, and WordPress and Photoshop and that kind of stuff. So if that's stuff you want to learn about and you want to be mentored by somebody, that person doesn't necessarily have to be in your neck of the woods. That mentor could very well be somebody you know, halfway around the world, but brought to you by the magic of the internet. And by the way, Linda is offering uh, for Read to Lead podcast and listeners right now a free 10-day trial where you get access to every video on their site absolutely free for 10 days. If you want to take advantage of that, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash Linda, that's read to lead podcast.com slash Linda, L Y N D A. Jeff, share a bit about, about the importance of mindset and, and what you learned uh, from your father when it comes to, to doing your best. So, my dad always told me to um, try my best, you know, as I'm sure a lot of parents do and, and you know, and have done. And uh, I was a pretty good student. Um, I would bring my report card home to my dad, and uh, I got. I for many years of my life I got straight A's, and then every once in a while I'd get a B or something, and he'd look at that and 
he just he wouldn't frown or look disappointed. He would go, Jeff, you know, did you did you try your best? And there were times because I just I never wanted to lie to my dad. I don't know what what this was about. <laughs> I learned how to do that eventually. Uh, <laughs> it was an acquired skill. Um, no, but I mean, for like when my dad would ask me in elementary school and middle school, did you try your best? And sometimes those were straight A's on the report card. And I'd go, ah, like I don't need to try my best. It was easy. And he would go, no, that's 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 not okay. I'm not. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed, you know, if, if you didn't try your best, even if you did great. Uh, and then the contrast was, say I got a C or something on my report card and, uh, you know, like that wasn't a, a typical grade for me. Um, and he, you know, goes, well, did you try your best? I go, dad, I tried really hard. Like I do not, I do not get chemistry. And he would go, great. You know, I'm, I'm really proud of you. So, um, that was really good. That was a really good lesson for me to learn. Um, but how the lesson I extrapolated from that, which was a bad lesson and then sort of how I redeemed it and learned, um, you know, uh, about what he was really getting to, I'll, I'll explain in a minute. But what I learned from that is if I just say I did my best, if I say I tried, then I'm fine. And I went through much of my life saying, oh, I tried and it didn't work. Not really understanding uh, the importance of practice. I call it painful practice in the book. Mm. And so you're not just supposed to find your calling, I argue. You're supposed to become really great at it. And doing your best means um, uh, two things. One, it means always pushing yourself to the extent of your abilities and then pushing a little bit further because we're actually capable of more than we realize. And so if I just go, I tried my best and I'm basically phoning it in, that's not good enough. And that's what my dad was teaching me when I got straight A's and I wasn't trying my best. He goes, that's not good enough. You got to keep pushing yourself. Not because he was a slave driver, not because he expected (laughs) perfection, but because he had this idea of what Carol Dweck calls um, the growth mindset. And the contrast to that is the fixed mindset. The growth mindset is always growing. You're always trying to do something, you know, better than you did before. The fixed mindset is, um, you know, this belief that we're sort of born with, you know, this set of abilities and it just kind of is what it is, but we can always keep growing. And, you know, so the lesson that we learn from practice is we've got to keep pushing ourselves. And, and then, um, you know, the, the other thing that we have to learn is I can't compare myself to somebody else's version of success. It's, my best. It's not your best. It's not, you know, Michael Jordan's best. It's my best. And if I'm continually pushing myself, continuing to do better and be better than I was the day before, then I'm embracing that growth mindset, which happens to be, according to Carol Dweck, uh, you know, the one of the secrets to happiness and, and one of the secrets to living a very miserable existence is to have this fixed mindset where you just sort of settle and worry about anybody passing you and, and you just kind of stay stuck in your current level of ability. So when you can do something when it's not fun or when you're bored with it or you want to give up, then you you just might have found your your calling. Is that ultimately what you're saying? Yeah. So, I mean, I I call it the crucible of painful practice. Uh, (laughs) You know, I think there's this fear that if you do something too much, like, for example, with me, it was playing music. I was a guitar player for many years and I still play guitar. But for a season, I thought, this is going to be my life. This is going to be my vocation. And I did it again and again and again, and I got really good at it. I got much better than I ever thought possible at it. And I started to burn out. And what I realized uh, isn't that if you pursue a passion or you push it too much that ultimately it becomes not fun anymore. I realized that hobbies don't necessarily equate to vocations. Mm. And so the best way that you can find your vocation is to put it through this, this difficult, painful process of practicing to the point where you're pushing yourself to your utter limits. And if it, that is a life-giving, exciting process and you can get up and do it again and again and again, 
it just might be your calling. And if it's not, it's not the end of the world. That's just a hobby. But I realized when I pushed myself with music, it burnt me out. When I pushed myself with writing, it got me more and more excited to grow. And I think practice isn't the thing uh, that you do once you figure out what your calling is. Practice is the thing that you do to discover what your calling is. Even if you can do the hard thing of serenading a girl and asking her to a dance, it might not be your calling, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, which I have some experience with. <laughs> I'd love for you to expound on, on, Jeff, your belief that we don't succeed despite our failures, but, but because of them. So I want us to rethink the way uh, we treat failure. Um, I think that we think of failure as a sign that we did something wrong. And certainly, you know, th- there can be some of that in that. But I, I think failure is like, uh-uh, don't try that again. You know, and if we fail enough, we just want to give up. But what if failure was one of the best teachers that we had in this process of finding our dream, discovering our life's work, and and leading a life of impact? And I have good reason to believe it is. I mean, one of the interesting things that I've learned in reading uh, tons of biographies, Jeff, I know that you love to read. I've gotten really into biography over the past few years because it's one thing to read you know, the seven secrets to this or 12 principles for that. It's another thing to read somebody's story and go, what did they do in this moment? And you can read, you know, the stories of uh, Albert Einstein and Benjamin Franklin and Mother Teresa and, and people who have led incredible lives of impact. Walt Disney was another one. And they all have this common attribute. And it's not that they failed once, but that they, in fact, had a season of failure. And often that season uh, in life lasts as long as 10 years. Uh, incidentally, that was the uh, you know in the uh, the Renaissance era, middle you know late Middle Ages period. That was the average length of an apprenticeship. An apprenticeship lasted seven years. Then you went out as a journeyman, which usually lasted two or three years, and then you became a master, uh, usually within you know the course of about ten years. And so, if we look at failure as this like sign that we're doing something wrong, then we misinterpret its message. But if we look at failure as the necessary course that we have to go through, the uh, apprenticeship that's going to qualify us to do our life's work, then we have a different way of thinking about it. And so I, I suggest that failure is, is kind of like what happens in basketball uh, when you, you're dribbling the ball down the court and then you stop, right? And mm. you kind of run out of options because if you keep running without dribbling uh, or you know, stop and then dribble again, you're going to travel and you know, you're going to lose the ball. Uh, but you have a final move left when you're you know, dribbling down the court in basketball. After you've taken your you know, final couple of steps, uh, you have what's called a pivot where you can leave one foot planted and you can basically circle 360 degrees. You can move in any, any direction. You're planted in one place. So, I mean, you, you have limited options, but at the same time, within those limitations, you can, you know, you have full range of motion and you can kind of pivot and turn in a different direction, pass the ball, shoot, you know, whatever, whatever you can do in that place. And I think we need to stop thinking of failure as failure and start thinking of it as a pivot point. In other words, when it seems like we are out of all other options, everything is exhausted. We still have room to pivot, which means that uh, when we run into an obstacle, it looks like there's no way to overcome it. Maybe the right thing to do is just tweak the direction a little bit and then start moving again. I, I have to admit that before reading this book, I thought Jeff Goins and sports analogies were mutually exclusive, but that's not necessarily the case. That's mostly the, <laughs> that's mostly the case, Jeff. <laughs> I was like Googling things to make sure because I was like, I like basketball. It's one of the sports that I really you know, enjoy and I you know, played when I was a kid. But um, I was like, I, I, if I get this wrong, this is gonna be tr- there's going to be trouble. <laughs> 
Well, when you first launched your podcast, The Portfolio Life, I was really intrigued by this term I felt you had coined to describe this, this new world of work that we're experiencing. And, and you say in the book, the future belongs to those willing to embrace this, this new kind of mastery. So what does the portfolio life look like? So the portfolio life is a term that I borrowed from a guy named Charles Handy who wrote this really interesting book called The Age of Unreason. It's a He's a British guy, and it's a business book from 1989, I believe. And that's really a book about the future of organizations. Uh, you know, really easy to read. I mean, akin to like a, you know, a Seth Godin book, mm. um, you know, very – you know, very readable, very interesting. But basically, he's predicting the future of organizations, companies, nonprofit organizations, the world of work as, as we know it. And this is in 1989. And he says, in the future, people are going to have portfolios for careers. And what he means by that is that instead of working one job for 40 years, retiring, getting a pension, you know, and just living out, you know, the the final remaining years of your life. And if you think, you know, kind of early 20th century, once you retired, you didn't have much life left to live. Typically, you know, the age expectancy was was lower and uh, and you'd usually, you know, worked yourself to the bone in that factory and, you know, worn yourself down. So, um, uh, he, you know, he says that this doesn't work anymore. Organizations are getting smaller, not bigger. People are outsourcing more. And he said in the future, um, most people are going to have portfolio careers, portfolio lives. And he said, uh, we should be preparing for that future now. Now, what's really interesting is recently Forbes uh, published a study. They didn't you know, conduct the study. Lots of people were talking about it. But mm-hmm. Forbes popularized this study uh, that basically predicted that by the year 2030, over half of the working force uh, will be – uh, independent contractors. They'll be freelancers. In, in other words, they will have portfolio careers. They won't have one gig. They'll have a bunch of gigs. And so the future is coming and it's going to happen in our lifetime where you won't just have one thing. You won't just master one craft and do that for the rest of your life. You're going to have to take a bunch of different skills and combine them in a unique way that is your portfolio. And that, I argue, is actually your calling. Well, I know you used to believe, you say in the book, that pursuing a dream was all about the person uh, doing the pursuing, that it was inherently selfish, I think is the phrase you use. What have you learned since, and, and what has your journey taught you about what it means to leave a legacy? I think a dream feels inherently selfish. I mean, it's something personal, it's private, it's something that you're usually hesitant to share with somebody else because you, you're afraid of failure or rejection, you don't want to get shut down. And yet, what I've learned is that when you start sharing your dream with the world, you realize how much bigger it is than you. You know, I think that we're caretakers of our dreams. We're not owners. You know, I, to, to be kind of nerdy, I think of, you know, in, in The Lord of the Rings, the <laughs> steward of Gondor, right? There's this, you know, character who's the steward of Gondor, and Gondor is the kingdom of men. And uh, he, you know, steward is this old, um, you know, uh, uh, medieval word. But it basically means... You're in charge of taking care of this land, but you don't own it. The king owns this, and you're just a steward of it. And so, you know, in in the re- the return of the king and Lord of the Rings, uh, the king comes back and he takes his rightful place, uh, you know, on on the throne. And you know, the expectation is that you know the steward has to step down. And I'm not going to go into you know a thousand page book and the plot, but there's <laughs> there's a lot wrapped up in that. But that's what I think is true of our 
dreams, the things that we feel like are our calling, you know, like we feel like it's, um, it belongs to us and it doesn't belong to you. You're, you're a steward of that. You're a caretaker of it. And in some ways it belongs to the people that it's going to, uh, impact. And, uh, to paraphrase Jackie Robinson, he says that a life is not significant except for the impact it has on others. And I found that a calling is the vehicle that gets you to that life of impact. Well, before I move on to some questions not directly related to the book, Jeff, is there anything else from the book you want to make sure we know about? I just, you know, I wrote this book because it bothered me that people weren't talking about this. And when uh, people that write books anyway that have, you know, uh, agendas to push sometimes and, you know, things to sell, uh, I just, I spent years researching this topic. I lived it. And then I, you know, went out and interviewed real people who had gone through this experience and I found that the norm isn't that you just know it's not just one thing uh, it, you know it, and it's and it's not something that you know just belongs to you it is a, a calling it is something that you discover as you take intentional action in your life uh, it, you know it's something that that grows you know as as you do it, it continues to evolve it's many things it's it's your whole life I think not just like something that you do when you're 35 and then just coast for the rest of your life and it's all gravy it is the life that you live and what I learned is it's not just about doing something it's about becoming becoming someone, the person that you're meant to be. And I don't ever write books just to write them because it makes me look good because uh, I look pretty good as it is. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, but but I, I write books. I write anything because I feel like this has to be written. And I mentioned this in the author's note. I, I didn't write the the book like this wasn't the book that I wanted to write I wanted to write a book where I was like oh, I was the guru and I'm going to tell you all these cool things but as I uh, kind of got into the process of writing it uh, I realized that this was the book that wanted to be written and uh, I think the final product of it for me was realizing wow this process really surprised me I set out to do one thing and I en- ended up doing something else finding your calling is a process that will surprise you and you know the point of this book the art of work is just to give you some signposts to recognize, you know, along the path to that destination. Well, I know you've really gotten into biographies here since we last talked and sat down to do this. Uh, So I'd be curious to know if you could name for us, Jeff, a a couple of books that you have read during that time or maybe are currently reading that have impacted you and and maybe share how or why they impacted you as they have. Sure. I read several books, you know, in just for fun. And also they they ended up contributing to the research for this book. Probably one of my favorite books that I read in the past year was uh, called Walt Disney. There's a lot of biographies about Walt Disney. I've read a couple. um, But I think probably the best one I've read so far has been uh, Walt Disney by Neil Gabler, Mm. N-E-A-L-G-A-B-L-E-R. I I listened to it on Audible. I know you're you're a fan of audio books. And it was really great. Some audiobooks are kind of scratchy and not great, you know, audio quality. <laughs> this was a great audiobook. I read that, um, Bonhoeffer by uh, Eric Metaxas. That was a great book. Kind of about like your calling, maybe the thing that actually gets you killed in his case. Mm. And, and there's a story that I mentioned in the book about pivot points where uh, Bonhoeffer actually pivoted away from comfort in the direction of you know a decision that would ultimately lead to his death where he was opposing Hitler and, and then he would be killed for that uh, but he knew when he made that decision that he was uh, likely you know going to his his death he left Germany moved to the US and and then turned around and, and went back cuz he it, it offended his conscience and uh, i think we need to you know read more stories about sometimes pursuing 
uh, your life's work uh, is going to leave a legacy, but it's not going to make you look great. It's not going to lead to your own personal comfort all the time. It can be really difficult. Uh, and then lastly, I mean, there's so many you know great biographies, but uh, you know another one that I really enjoyed was, uh, and it's a, a long one, was Titan, which is the story of John D. Rockefeller. Mm. Uh, that that is an incredible book. It's a thousand page book, so I don't recommend it lightly because it's it's going to take some time to get through. But uh, you know, the world's richest man, uh, you know, who was also one of the world's biggest philanthropists, uh, kind of a polemical figure. You know, he they basically wrote the Sherman Antitrust Act, mm. you know, which is about monopolies. <laughs> based on his business practices because those laws did not exist. And, uh, but it's just interesting. I mean, we have an, an inherited, uh, at least in the U.S., we've inherited um, a culture that he, you know, uh, impacted. And we see, you know, the fruit of that influence even today. Anyway, it was just, it's a fascinating uh, book. But uh, out of all those, if I could pick one, I'd pick that Walt Disney book. It was great. Well, I know you would agree that uh, being able to effectively share your ideas in public can play a major role uh, in your ability to succeed. And so I'd be curious to know, as somebody who does a fair amount of public speaking, what are some tips you would have for delivering a meaningful and, and memorable public talk? So one of the best things I ever did was invest in my public speaking, mm-hmm. meaning I went to a public speaking conference, not once, not twice, but three times, <laughs> a conference called the SCORE Conference. Mm-hmm. SCORE is spelled with two R's, and that, that is an acronym for a method that I use for speech preparation. It's uh, something that I learned from Ken Davis. Uh, Michael Hyatt has used it as well. Um, I've talked to many people who are public speakers that you know before were pretty good, and then they go through that, and they are great. But I, I think you know the lesson there is have a system. Don't just get up and talk. Like have a system, uh, you know, some method for preparing the speech so that when people are listening to it, they have some sense of where this is leading. And recently I saw two you know, public speakers, one who had a lot of emotion, a lot of stories, was entertaining to listen to, but I didn't really know, you know, what the outcome was. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I had no idea when the speech was going to end. There, there was no sense of momentum. It was just, it was a lot of stuff and it's hard to, it's hard to focus on that mentally when I don't know where you're going. I don't know where you've been and I can't remember what you've said. <laughs> and then co- contrasted that with another speaker I saw who um, was, you know, it wasn't super polished, but had three main points. And he didn't say point one, point two, point three. It was just obvious that there was a structure, beginning, middle, and end, had some interesting anecdotes to support those points, and then some memorable takeaways. And I was like, wow, this was excellent. I you know, had notes. I knew exactly what I was supposed to go do after listening to this speech. And I think that's something that people – don't realize. I didn't realize this. I thought you just kind of stand up and talk. And, you know, I think you have to have a structure, a means of organizing the talk. And and when you're delivering it, um, you need to let people know where you're going. But there also needs to be tension. So, you know, the uh, age old advice, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them and then tell them what you've told them. That's bad advice. Because if you tell them what you're going to tell them, now they know and they can leave. <laughs> the better way to do it is to say, I'm going to tell you three things. Here's thing one. Here's thing two. Here's thing three. Now we're done. So that there's suspense, you know, there's, there's uh, anticipation of what's to come. So organization and suspense, I think those two things together will create a very memorable talk. Uh, you mentioned Ken Davis. I'll put a link uh, to our interview with him uh, in the yeah. show notes from episode 16. I loved his book, Secrets of Dynamic Communication. 
I know at the time that we're publishing this conversation, you've got a special promotion uh, going on leading up to the actual release of the book. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to, to share a bit of the details about that. Well, thanks, Jeff. I, I appreciate that. This is a book that I'm really excited about, and I made the decision that when I was writing this, that I was going to do everything I could to get this book into as many hands as possible. And uh, because I am a full-time writer, but I also you know, have side businesses and I do other things, uh, partly because I thought when I started writing, there was no way that I'd be able to make a full-time living doing it. <laughs> um, because of that, it gives me the freedom to you know, do risky things to get more books into people's hands uh, without you know, it, it you know, costing me you know, the opportunity of keeping the lights on at my house. So for this book, we're doing something really risky, and I'm only offering this to my readers and then to you know, friends of mine who have you know, audiences as you do, Jeff. This isn't you know, some mass publicity thing that we're doing. Uh, but basically what we've done is we have a limited number of books that we're giving away for free. Uh, all you have to do is pay shipping and handling to you know, get the book to your doorstep and I'm giving the book to you for free. But there's a limited time that we're doing that. That's between now and March 23rd will be the last day to do it. The book publishes on March 24th. If you do that, you're going to get the book when it comes out like everybody else. But if you do that uh, now, you'll get a free digital download to start reading the book now. And then there's a bunch of bonuses, including a free online course, a video course, where uh, I talk through these four different mindset shifts that you have to go through in order to begin to find your calling. There's a downloadable workbook. There's over $250 worth of bonuses uh, with a free book. All you have to do is you know, pay the shipping and handling. So I'm excited about this. I mean, it's not, I have, I've had several friends go, why in the world are you doing this? Well, because I believe in this message. I want to get it into people's hands. And I think if we get into people's hands, it'll get people talking, which will allow you know, uh, more books to reach more people. Well, Jeff, I've always been uh, really appreciative of you and your work, especially going back to the beginning of this podcast uh, journey. You were one of those who agreed to an interview before the podcast had even launched and, and helped us uh, get started. So, so thank you very much for that. Thank you for coming back and sharing with us about the art of work. We really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. And I forgot to mention where to get that free oh, yeah. book. That's at artofworkbook.com, artofworkbook.com. And uh, there's a video that'll talk you through all of that. And uh, like I said, there's a limited number of, of books and this is for a limited time. And that's not just something I'm saying to go get you to do it. I just don't want you to you know, miss that opportunity. But thanks again, Jeff. It was a pleasure. Well, as I hinted at the beginning of the show, Jeff expressed a desire to do something just for listeners of the Read to Lead podcast. So we're going to do a bonus episode uh, that will uh, publish in early to mid-March. And this time, instead of me initiating the questions, the questions are going to come directly from you. And here's how you can submit a question for Jeff that could indeed air in our bonus episode uh, together. Just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash question, and there you'll have a chance from your mobile device or from your desktop to press a record button and leave a voicemail version of your question. Now, before you think to yourself, oh my gosh, the pressure's on, I've got to get it right the first time. No, that's not necessarily the case. If you mess up your message the first time, you can stop and re-record your message, so no pressure at all. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to start off your message by introducing yourself, saying hello and your name, and tell us if you want to your web website address and then follow that with your question. Now, if we use your question on the bonus episode, your name is going to go into a drawing 
for three surprise books that I'll be giving away. Not one, not two, but three different books from previous guests here on the Read to Lead podcast. Again, the way to submit your question for the bonus episode with Jeff, readtoleadpodcast.com slash question. Our new Facebook group is rapidly growing, and we would love to have you there. A lot of interaction happening, a lot of great discussion, too. To be added to the Facebook group, just go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash group. A couple of great podcasts I encourage you to check out. My friend Brendan Hufford is hosting Entrepreneurs and Coffee. It launched a little over a month ago and is doing very, very well. E and Coffee. And there's the brand new podcast launching just this week from my friend Eric Skibaris. It's the Mentor Me podcast found at mentormepodcast.com. Well, I'm so glad you've made it through another episode, and I look forward to seeing you next time for the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. like to get away, take a holiday from the neighborhood, hop a flight to Miami Beach or to Hollywood, but I'm taking a Greyhound on the Hudson River line, I'm in a New York state of mind.